morning to each one. Grace and peace be with each of you here this morning. I appreciate the prayer we had for the presence of the Lord. The other thing we need is is the anointing of God upon us and upon the uh, the work we do, the efforts we put forth into our labors. We need his anointing. We don't want to just be beating the air like Paul talked about in what we do, but with purpose and with direction and anointing from God on his work. You know, in our Sunday school, we've been studying from the, the works of Jesus, from John. I'd like to take you to John chapter 4 for some preliminary thoughts to the message this morning. And maybe just um, revisit some, some of these verses that we have studied. I know two weeks ago we talked about um, the, Jesus and the, the teachings, the events he had with the Samaritan woman. And what I notice is that when, when Jesus begins to teach, and often in his uh, encounters, there were many different topics of, of um say directions you could go with his teaching he taught he taught in that setting he taught about marriage he taught about uh thirsting and and desire he he taught about worship and where that is to take place but in john chapter 4 verse 35 he says say not ye there are yet four months and then cometh harvest behold i say unto you lift up your eyes and look on the fields for they are white already to harvest and I think how this ties into with the previous verse 23, where he says, the hour cometh and now is. The hour cometh and now is, but in a sense it isn't officially here yet, but it is on the way, it is at, at the door. Do you recognize where it, where it is? You know, when, when the day of Pentecost, it says in that moment at the day of Pentecost where Jesus had already gone back to heaven. Things had taken on a, a new, a whole, a whole new uh, program with with where God was at. But yet, they hadn't officially arrived at the day of Pentecost. And it said, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, so it's like the the work of God was a glass getting fuller and fuller. And I think it's our place to recognize that the, the glass, his work, is indeed filling up. It may not be quite to the brim yet, but that, that kind of lends itself to maybe our, our um, pressing into recognizing what God, what the next move of God is going to be, which, of course, is his return, is the appearing. And yet even before that officially happens, I think there are, are signs along the way and maybe a, a desire in our heart for that to happen, to bring that about. There's also here in verse 36 this thing of sowing and reaping where he says, He that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. 
You know, I had to think of um, Solomon, I believe, wrote some words to where he, he didn't look upon this favor, unfavor, in an unfavorable way. That one man sows, one man labors, and then another comes along and he reaps the reward or he reaps the the assets that came from that first man's labor. He says that, he looks on that as a, as a vanity. He calls it, that is, an, that is not... In his sight, that was not a good thing for whatever reason, you know, because we all pass away and then the fruits of our labor go to someone else. In the natural sense, that may seem like a discrepancy, but in God's kingdom, in, in God's work, I think what Jesus is saying, he that soweth and he that reapeth are working together. And this, this happens when we, when we sow, or you could say when we contribute into the work of God's kingdom. In a sense, we are reaping at the same time that we're sowing because others before us have sown into something that we are beneficiaries of. And it just helps tie the work of the kingdom together when we consider what others have done. We did that some this this past week with conference. And so some of that comes into focus with, with history, uh, decisions that need to be made, and how we arrive at those decisions, and we refer back to what other people have done and their reasons for doing it. Now, it isn't to say that changes could not be made and should be made at times, but verse 37 says, And here is the saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestow no labor. Other men labor, and ye are entered into their labors. So I like that perspective of the work that we do. We aren't just a man out here on an island trying to, to uh, do our own thing, but really in, in perspective of entering into the labors of others, that is indeed what we are doing it, over the years in a historical sense, I believe we could look at it that way. For a, for a message, I would like to look at the book of Joshua today. I'd like to take you first of all to chapter 18. Joshua chapter 18. I'm going to read uh, through verse 7. And it says, The whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of the congregation there. And the land was subdued before them. And there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes which had not yet received their inheritance. And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, How long are ye slack to go to possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you? Give out from among you three men for each tribe, and I will send them, and they shall rise and go through the land and describe it according to the inheritance of them, and they shall come again to me. And they shall divide it into seven parts. Judah shall abide in their coast on the south, and the house of Joseph shall abide in their coasts on the north. 
Ye shall therefore describe the land into seven parts and bring the description hither to me that I may cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. But the Levites have no part among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance. And Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond Jordan on the east, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. I'd like to, there's a verse in this, in these, these verses I read, I'd like to um, circle back again to later on. But, you know, I thought of those, those couple and a half tribes that remained on the east side of Jordan. It brings that up here, and I've wondered in my study of Joshua, was that a good idea? Was that the right thing for them to do? to say that we are going to stay here on the, on the east side of Jordan. Jordan was kind of the dividing line, you could say, between, between uh, plots of land. It was, a, it was the marker, the Jordan River. And yet you had these couple tribes that wanted to, they saw the land. To me, I think it was a desirable land for their, for their animals, for their crops. And very possibly, it was a land they could take without conquest. And so maybe in that sense, it was desirable. Um, Moses seemed to be agreeable to this. And I, I believe the Lord seemed like he, he did not oppose it. But did it lead to problems later? And I think in a sense, there, there were some misunderstandings that came out of that if you read the book of, of Joshua. And, and so I've wondered, I haven't studied this out thoroughly, whether this was a good move for them or not, or would have been better if the whole 12 tribes had just crossed the Jordan and remained there. So that's a little question in my mind, and maybe one that could, could uh, deserve a little homework. I notice here, too, that Moses, it's referred to Moses as the servant of the Lord. The book of Joshua is after Moses died, and so it's, it's kind of a reset, a regrouping of the people. Are they going to um, retain their allegiance to, 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 to a new leader as well as retaining their allegiance to God? In a sense, it was a, it was a time of renewal. And Moses is, is off the picture. But if you read through Joshua, I've noticed when it refers to Moses, which it does quite a bit, it refers to him as the servant of the Lord. Moses, the servant of the Lord. Not every time, but it is, a, it is like a title that um, is used concerning Moses. We are servants of God. Now that, that term, a servant, is not in the five-fold ministry as you would read in the epistles where you have apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. It doesn't mention servants. Now, another term we use is minister. Minister is even lower on the totem pole. In reality, Joshua was the minister to Moses. That is the term used there, but we often think of a minister. Oh, he's a minister. Doesn't that kind of elevate your estimation of a person? And it's, it's maybe it's a title that, that we should lower the estimation of that title. 
um, because that is a term we use for someone who is serving, like a behind the scenes, a small servant girl, someone who is in a lowly position. They are ministering in that way. That is what it needs to be. Maybe our pulpits are a little too tall. Maybe literally and figuratively, this pulpit's a lot taller than I think it should be or needs to be for this group here today at least. Maybe there's a place for a higher platform in larger crowds. But really, we, as servants of God, and that is the title that the apostles gave themselves when they wrote the epistles. They introduced themselves as a servant. That is how Moses was um, esteemed in the book of Joshua, and that's how by, uh, that that's a proper view of the man of God, Moses, who we know was a great man. He was a great leader. People looked up to it. And so that caught my interest in how the Bible describes great men of faith. They were servants, and that is to be our estimation of ourselves, I believe. Let's go now to Joshua chapter 1. And I just want to pick out some highlights. I recently have studied through this book of Joshua. And I thought to bring to your, to, to your mind some of the highlights. Now maybe just the highlights will take a while, so I want to, to do this um, in a timely fashion. Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, it says, There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of, of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. I see a foundation here, a promise from God. Verse 11. Pass through the host and command the people, saying, Prepare you victuals, for within three days ye shall pass over this Jordan and go in to possess the land which the Lord thy God giveth you. And now I'd like to, to uh, go to verse 16. And this is the response of the people. They say, they answer Joshua, saying, All that thou commandest us, we will do, and whithersoever thou sendest us, we will go. According as we have hearkened unto Moses in all these things, so will we hearken unto thee. Only the Lord thy God be with thee, as he was with Moses. Whosoever he be that doth rebel against thy commandments, and will not hearken unto thy words in all that thou commandest him, he shall be put to death. Only be strong and of good courage. So I see three principles established here right away in verse in chapter 1 that is the promise you have that promise in verse 5 from god you have the preparation in verse 11 there was some order that was to be brought forth there was there was a, a, a preparing in their hearts i believe both outwardly and inwardly to to the mindset that we are now going to pass over this jordan and to possess the land. So you have a promise, you have preparation, and then you have, thirdly, passion. The passion of the people. They were enthused. 
verse 16. They were in agreement. You could say everything was firing on all cylinders. Most people, I think, when they look at the overall the book of Joshua, it is a story of courage. It is a story of strength. You could say strength and courage, the two main themes in the book of Joshua. Also, most people's impressions of the events in Joshua have to do with the, the, the conquest of Jericho and Ai, those two cities. Most people don't know what happened after that, but they do remember Jericho and Ai. God said, see, I've given into your hand the king of Ai. What is Ai today? Think about that. AI, artificial intelligence, is that going to be something that is, will be, end up being our enemy that we need to, to reckon with? I just thought of that as the name of that town there. So be strong, strength. Be strong in the Lord. That is a New Testament teaching, to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And then there's courage. We could say a, a sense of fearlessness in our spirit. When it refers to, to men as valor, the mighty men of valor, that's what it's referring to, courage, boldness, maybe even daring. That needs to be part of our, our mindset in, in the world we live. I believe courage also involves having a vision, a goal. It involves having a word of promise, or you could say a, a word of prophecy. As many people that, that follow the will of the Lord, they were given a, either, either directly by God or in their spirit, they had a sense that this is what the Lord has me to do. 1 Corinthians 9, 26 says, So therefore I run not as uncertainly, so I fight not as one that beateth the air. That was the words of Paul. There's a, there's a scripture in Proverbs that says, Where there is no vision, the people perish. Where there is no vision. If you study out that word vision, it, it has to do with, many other translations would call it a, a, a revelation where there is no revelation or where there is no prophetic vision, the people perish. They begin to run amok. And, and one, one term they use is that in um, the perish is that they cast off restraint. It's not like they die, but they, they begin to rebel and there's confusion with that. The one reason I think I say we need a prophetic vision is because uh, I think there's a story that illustrates this. In the story of David and Goliath, facing Goliath there, I think David was an example of a man that had a prophetic vision, much like leaders of old did. They, they had a sense of where things need to go. David said it in 1 Samuel 17. He said, the Lord hath delivered me. 
the Lord that delivered me out of the power of the lion and out of the power of the bear or the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of the Philistine. How did he know that? How can you predict an outcome such as that when you're serving in the will of the Lord unless you have an understanding in your spirit that this is how God is going to work in this particular experience? David told Goliath to his face, this day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee. So David used his tools. He had a sling. He had some wherewithal there, but he did not trust in his tools. Goliath also had his weaponry, but he was trusting in his weaponry. That is where we make our mistake. When we trust in the tools, we need to trust in the Lord it is God that did, did the deliverance. And that's true throughout the book of Joshua. In chapter 2, we have the story of the spies and Rahab. I'm just going to read a couple verses here, 19 through 21. And it shall be that whosoever shall go out of the doors of thy house into the street, his blood shall be upon his head, and we will be guiltless. And whosoever shall be with thee in the house, his blood shall be on our head, if any hand be upon him. And if thou utter this our business, then will we be quit of thine oath which thou hast made us swear. And she said, According unto your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet line in the window. I'd like to talk just a second about this scarlet line. You know, this served as a sign to both parties that there had been a covenant, that there had been an agreement. But it was only to those that were part of that agreement that understood the sign, that understood that symbol. To anybody outside that covenant, it was meaningless. They didn't know what it meant. It did not arouse suspicion, I don't believe. And that was the purpose of it. It was... And to the casual observer, it, it was meaningless. And so the scarlet thread, I think, could be a um, kind of a token of, of our agreement with God, the blood of Christ. It, it could uh, symbolize like the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant. That signified salvation. But it was meaningless to those that didn't know about it. And so um, that, was, that was her salvation in that setting. Chapter 3, verse 3, it says, And they commanded the people, saying, When ye see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, and the priests the Levites bearing it, then ye shall remove from your place and go after it. They were to follow. They were to follow the ark. It was the presence of God. They were to be attentive to notice when that ark moved. I like the words of Joshua in verse 5. He said, sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Sanctification, it's, it's a 
kind of a big subject, but that's what they were called to do, to sanctify themselves, to position themselves in a way that was set apart and holy, consecrated. It, it, uh, being sanctified it involves all those definitions. There's two, two aspects I, I see in, in sanctification. One is, it is a past work, and it is also a present work. 1 Corinthians 6, 11 says, And such were some of you, but ye are washed, and ye are sanctified. Ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. What a beautiful verse that is. That is a past work. Ye are sanctified. But then I think there's an ongoing sanctification that takes part in, in our lives as well. Scripturally, 1 Peter 1, 2. And I'm, I want to read this from the NIV. I believe it brings it out a little better. It says, Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That is a, an ongoing present work, I believe, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. So it's important to be sanctified. Now, I don't know if we understand all the ins and outs of that or how to what, what our go-to go plan is to make that happen, but it's, it's part of our Christian experience to be sanctified. And, and in Joshua's context, he said, do this because the Lord will do wonders on the morrow, will do wonders among you. So I see maybe that as, as part of the reason we sanctify ourselves. Do we want to see the wonders of God? You know, there's, there's a couple of points you can make about this, and that is the purpose of sanctification is to make it possible for God to work in order that God may indeed work a wonder. It talks about there, where they limited the Holy One of Israel in Psalms. They limited God. You don't, we don't think God is being limited, but we, we can limit God by not being sanctified. It, it limits the amount of work that he can do in our behalf. And number two, I think sanctification, that work in our life, the purpose of which could be to be able to see the work that God has already done, the work that he is already doing. There's a song that says, they scan his works in vain. Um, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He has all these works that are, are visible. And yet, the, the eye of unbelief scans his work in vain. So, as we sanctify ourselves, I think it helps us to see the works of God. Joshua chapter 4, verse 24. Kind of sums up 3 and 4, chapters 3 and 4. It says that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that ye might fear the Lord your God forever. I'd like to move through um, 
some of these next chapters, it talks about the conquests of Jericho and Ai. A lot of us know the details to their story. But I'd like to uh, go to chapter 8 of Joshua, verse 26. say this is a, another theme maybe perhaps of the work that Joshua did for Joshua drew not his hand back wherewith he stretched out the spear until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai he drew not his hand back and we, we can envision a hand outstretched one that is pointing the way maybe some of you are Remember that painting of Napoleon, I believe it was, crossing the Alps or something. It was a painting. He was sitting on a horse and he, he was pointing the way with his arm. Just a picture of resolve and boldness. The mountain was before him. The wind was at his back and he was calling the troops, rallying the troops. We need a little bit of that spirit in our, in our circles today. How often the, the word of God speaks of God who saved with an outstretched hand, with a mighty hand, and with great power, and with great terribleness. You know, there is a battle we are fighting in the, in the world. And maybe the, the ragings of the enemy, Satan is a, a roaring lion. He, uh, it seems fearsome. Or maybe we don't sense that it is fearsome. Maybe we are protected in many ways by the hand of God. His favor is indeed upon us. I rejoice in that. But I, I dare not say we are not in a battle. I think many of us are facing battles that we don't speak of, maybe openly. And on the outside, it looks all good. But during the week, there are things, we all face things. There are battles. The, the wonder but the wonder and the fierceness of God's addressing that and provision for that is no match for the fierceness of the enemy. I think of Joseph, his bow abode in strength and the arms of his hands were made strong by the mighty hands of the God of Jacob. Joshua 11. Verse 19, verse uh, 19, yes. Again, another, you could say a summary. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel, save the Havites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. All other they took in battle, for it was of the Lord to harden their hearts. It was of the Lord to harden the hearts of the nations, I read into that, that they should come against Israel in battle that he might destroy them utterly, and that they might have no favor, but that he might destroy them as the Lord commanded Moses. In the sense, you get the idea God wants this battle to happen. He wants it to take place to the effect that the enemies can be destroyed. And we know that story of the Gibeonites. They, they worked wily, and they made peace with with Joshua, and we say, well, that wasn't a very good situation because they, for, for starters, they deceived him. But speaking on behalf of the Gibeonites, 
can you really fault them? They, they were seeing that Joshua was just mopping up and they knew they were on the, next on the list. Can you really blame them for wanting to make peace with Israel? What, was that a legitimate option for these nations? And as I read, as I read verse 19, I would have to say that, that maybe it was an option. Maybe they didn't heed the spirit of rebelling against Joshua. And so in, in a sense, you could say they, they worked wily. They worked wisely. Maybe, maybe a better move would have been for them to just tell Joshua, we are of this locality. Can you, can you, can, are we able to make peace with you? Maybe they didn't trust Joshua to that extent, and maybe he wouldn't have preserved them. I don't know. But in the, in the course of the, this conquest, we, we, we see and we can, we can read where there were nations that were not totally, utterly cast out. They remained unto this day. I see that maybe as a type of things we face in our lives. We all have some issues. We, we all may have some besetting sins or, or things that are, are not ideal. And yet not all is lost. Not all is defined by those circumstances in our life. I'd like to look at Joshua chapter 15. Verse 63. Joshua 15, verse 63. Again, the end, ending verse here says, As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out, but the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem unto this day. Verse 10 of chapter 16. And they drave not out the Canaanites that dwell in in Gezer, but in the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites unto this day and serve unto tribute. Verse 12 of the next chapter, chapter 17, verse 12 says, Yet the children of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of those cities, but the Canaanites would dwell in that land. So I don't see this as a failure, but I do see it as a discrepancy. And maybe we let the discrepancies of our life overly define who we are, our identity in the Lord. Notice verse 13. It says, Yet it came to pass when the children of Israel were waxen strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute but did not utterly drive them out. When the children of Israel were waxed strong. That's a call upon our life as a, as a Christian. To, to grow in the grace of God, to, to get off the milk and to become strong. And when that happens, we put our enemies, if we can't utterly get rid of them, at least we can put them to tribute. In the, in the case of the Gibeonites, it would seem looking back on that, they, they became of value to Israel to some extent because Joshua uh, made, them, made them servants. He, he let them work in in the, some of the, the trade work that needed to be done, just the things that needed to be done, it was useful. And I wonder sometimes if, if that's the way we could view 
things in our, in our midst that come up. Technology, what do you do with it? Some of it seems like it's really evil and bad. Can we, can we rise up in strength and grow to where we are strong enough to, to make these, these things that may not be ideal, make them service to the extent that they are among us? The, the complexity of the work and the, the scope of the work that Joshua did, you don't really realize it until you read through the book of Joshua. We think of AI, we think of Jericho. But there are hundreds of cities and places that Joshua conquered. 384, I counted, specific cities listed in the book of Joshua. 384. Jericho and Ai were just the beginning. This was a big job. Our lives are that way. It, it's a big job. And if we don't take one day at a time, we could, we could get discouraged. Notice in chapter 17. Verse 14, it says, The children of Joseph spake unto Joshua, saying, Why hast thou given me but one lot and one portion to inherit? See, I am a great people, for as much as the Lord hath blessed me hitherto. And Joshua answered them, If thou be a great people, then get thee up to the wood country, and cut down for thyself there in the land of the Perizzites and of the giants, if Mount Ephraim be too narrow for thee. And the children of Joseph said, If the hill is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites that dwell in the land of the valley have chariots of iron, both they who are of Bathsheon and her towns, and they who are of the valley of Jezreel. And Joshua spake unto the house of Joseph, even to Ephraim and to Manasseh, saying, Thou art a great people. First he asked them, If thou be, you know, are, are you willing to prove yourself? <coughs> If thou be, but later he says, thou art. Thou art a great people, and thou hast great power. Thou shalt not have one lot only, but the mountain shall be thine, for it is wood, and thou shalt cut it down, and the outgoings of it shall be thine. For thou shalt drive out the Canaanites, though they have iron chariots, and though they be strong. Here again, the call to be strong. I'd like to bring out yet yeah, where we started here in chapter 18. There's a, the first verse here says, The whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh, and they set up the tabernacle of the congregation there, and the land was subdued before them. I see three things that could be brought out of this verse. One is they assembled together. The whole congregation assembled together. Is that something we value? I believe we do. Maybe just instinctively we know that's the right thing to do. And maybe it becomes a routine and, and it loses some of its, its value in our mind. But the congregation, as we are here today, it has value in assembling together. There is some principles of assembling together Hebrews 10 says, forsaking not the assembling of yourself together. There's just 
another level that comes into that. You know, there was, there was a discussion one time. I remember John D. Martin, Dave's brother, was, was talking about a fellow that, or, or maybe he was, he was saying this tendency of people to, they want to serve the Lord. They're going to go out and serve the Lord, but they don't want to be a part of a church. Well, he said that's like someone saying, I'm going to play professional baseball, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to join a team. We are a team. We are of assembly of God. And it is through that assembly, I believe, God brings out his power, his presence, and his anointing. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching, to consider one another, to provoke unto love and good works. That is best done and often only done in a corporate setting in that reality. Number two, it talks about the tabernacle of the congregation. The tabernacle, I see that as, as signifying the presence of God. It's not enough just to meet. We have to meet in the presence of God or with that as our intention that we want God's presence. There, there's a lot of meetings that take place that are, are secular. That's not what we're after. We are after the presence of God. We are after the glory of God. Psalms 89.7 says, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are round about him. I believe that is also a New Testament um, prerogative and principle. You know, congregational life, I believe, adds a, a depth and a dignity to the order and to the function of a church. You have that principle of there's two or three witnesses there that can witness to what is taking place. What you bind on earth can be bound in heaven. With ready feet I love to appear. Among thy saints and see thy face, seek thy face. Oft have I seen thy glory there and felt the power of sovereign grace. Words of great hymn. The tabernacle. It was the presence of God. It was the token of their agreement. The vis visible, tangible, manifest presence of God. There was a certain orderliness that was definitely a part of the Old Testament experience. And we, we adapt some orderliness to, our, to the way we approach God too. To let all things be done decently and in order in church affairs. Certainly a place for that. But the main thing is the presence of God. We, we want to make that our goal. The presence of the Holy Spirit. Do we position ourselves as a church? Do we posture ourselves before God to allow the Holy Spirit to have free course, to have freedom? Does he feel at home in our assemblies? And number three in this verse, it talks about the land was subdued. The land was subdued. We are here to subdue evil. And I sense that our prayer should be the Lord's prayer, deliver us from evil. That should be our prayer going into this new year. Deliver us from evil. I think that 
certainly is, is part of the equation. But as a church, we don't just sit back and let it happen. We actually have to, to be a partner with God. The, the co-mission, it is a co-mission. It's not just a mission. It's a co-mission with God. The land was subdued. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies. I think what that's saying is that the Lord uses unlikely circumstances, things from unlikely sources, and we know this throughout scripture, to bring about a mighty work and the defeat of an enemy. Simplicity. There is a simplicity, I believe, in following God. When the power of God is present, we don't, we don't have to just do like Baal worshipers and begin to dance and, and carry on and cut yourself with knives and try to force this to happen. But notice how Jesus went about. I, I get the impression that Jesus was pretty much sedate about his work. He just went around and he did it with authority and it was effective. So I think sometimes there's a tendency to think that if we get radical enough, God will move and God will do something. But um, not always. Sometimes it's in, in quietness and confidence. In quietness and confidence. And in a still small voice, we accomplish the work of God. 1 Peter 2, 15, For so is the will of God that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. I'd like to take you to John chapter 3. Verse 18 and 19. John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. I'm sorry. 1 John chapter 3 verses 18 and 19. It says, My little children, let us love in word. Let us love not in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now, don't think he's saying we're excluding the words. He's, I think it's more the idea, let us not love only in word, but let us love in deed and in truth. And then I want to notice here the next verse. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. And hereby, or another translation says, by this, by this we assure our hearts. Who cannot maybe benefit from a little more assurance in their hearts these days? Confidence in what the Lord is doing. It is saying here the way we do that is by putting our theology, by putting our theories and putting good ideas into shoe leather, by, by making it happen. In, in deed and in truth. That is the assurance from there. Now that's not our only assurance, but what I'm saying is as we walk in that, in the steps of being active, carrying out the will of God, out of that comes an assurance. The fruit of our lives becomes the testimony, the witness. 
And it is often the fruit of our life that puts to flight the enemies of darkness. I'm thinking of in the book of Numbers where Aaron's rod bloomed. And God said, by this, I will put to silence the murmurings and the disputings. I see that as a, as a parallel to our lives. That is how we defeat a lot of our battles, is, is simply walking in the, in the word of God and allowing the fruit of our life to be the testimony. We don't, we don't have to defend ourselves so much. If there's, just, just let there be fruit. Let there be the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Let there be the gifts of the Spirit. The church will not be defeated. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of God. So they had the assembly of the people. They had the presence of God represented by the tabernacle and they defeated the enemies. I see that perhaps as a, a summary of the book of Joshua and, and a summary of our life.